0: So excited to have my next guest back on the show. She's been on before. Rhonda Kelly stopped by the podcast. She is a former first responder serving as a firefighter for many years. Now she is the executive director at the All Clear Foundation, supporting first responders everywhere. I love it when former first responders continue to give back to the first responder community. Rhonda Kelly, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Patrick here, host and creator of the CJ Evolution Podcast, a podcast that wouldn't be around unless it was for you, the listener and supporter. Thank you so much for tuning in. A big thanks to you, the first responder, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at, thank you for doing it. As we head Into the holiday season. Well, I guess we're in the holiday season. I know it's a tough time for many of you out there. Please be strong and remember if you are suffering, you do not have to do it any longer. FHE Health and Shatterproof for First Responders is here for you. If you or somebody you know is suffering, please, not a day longer, reach out for help today. Contact me directly. All calls are confidential. I can help you get the treatment you need and deserve. 303-960-9819.
1: What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Very excited to have my next guest on the show. She's been on before and she's a good friend of mine, Rhonda Kelly background as a firefighter. And she's also making an impact. A very big impact still with first responders. Rhonda, welcome.
2: Thanks, Patrick. It's really good to see you again. Even you know, though it's it is virtual.
0: good. What's that? Even though it's just virtual. I know we the last time we met, uh, I think it was uh, in my little Quasi Studio, and that was a couple of years ago, wasn't it? It
2: was before COVID. Uh,
0: it, was, <laughs> it was
2: 2019,
0: right? It was before COVID and you came in, we met, we had a great discussion. And it's amazing how COVID kind of changed everything, right? I mean, changed kind of the, the landscape. We're, thankfully, we're doing a lot more in person. Uh, I'm talking in general now, but, you know, it's still great to to hook up virtually and and talk to you again.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the invite.
0: Well, of course. No, no, you're very busy. But for those people who don't know you, Rhonda, what's a little bit? Of, I gave a little snippet in the intro right there. Your your background as a firefighter. Uh, can you can you go in a little bit more detail with your background?
2: Sure. I started in emergency response work back in 1996. I was working on icebreakers for the U.S. Antarctic Program.
0: Totally baffles jobs. me.
2: I know. It was fun. It was a blast. So one of my jobs was an expanded practice EMT. We only had EMTs as the sole medical provider on the ship. Spent four years there. When I was approaching late 20s and thought it was time to go get my adult job, I landed in Colorado, which is where the Antarctic program was based, was volunteering for a rural ambulance as an EMT, working as a paid EMT for an urban service shadowing nurses and pas in the er i was thinking i wanted to do one of those roles but wanted to differentiate them and while i was there i kept seeing firefighter paramedics come in bringing in patients and thought that just looks like too much fun that looks great i jumped ship again proverbially this time (laughs) and yeah became a firefighter paramedic in aurora for 17 years while there i picked up my rn on the side and was working on a part-time basis in an er and a psych er in, in denver Oh, about 11 years into my career, the opportunity to become the health and safety officer came up, and I jumped on that, tested for the position, was fortunate to receive it, and then um, really started to focus not only on taking care of the community, as as you and I have discussed, so many responders, regardless of their branch, their motivation is to help others. Mm
1: -hmm. And
2: I had been seeing at that point in time changes in myself, changes in my coworker, and was wondering, you know, what's what's happening with us? And I decided this is a great opportunity to shift into taking better care of our own so they can take better care of the community. So uh, last several years of my career, I served as health and safety officer. Out of that, the University of Colorado's medical school, CU Anschutz, reached out and asked, hey, how how can we help firefighters? We'd really like to work with firefighters. And I proposed to them, what we really need to do is stop working in isolation, not just the isolation of our agencies, but the isolation of our branches. Because even back then, 2012, 2013, we knew suicide was one of our leading occupational killers. We just weren't doing anything effective Mm -hmm. about it. We were failing to recognize that all of these branches that are housed under the broad umbrella of the term emergency responder, law enforcement, fire, EMS, dispatch, corrections, search and rescue, coroners, disaster workers, that all of us were trained to respond to the needs of our communities in times of crisis, disaster, emergency. None of us were really taught that empathy and compassion are two of our biggest skill sets. I always (laughs) love to say nobody wants to call 911 and have a sociopath show up. They want somebody skilled and who cares? But that we're not taught that empathy and compassion are also potential pathways for injury, and this leads exactly right the stress injury model borrowed from the military, and then all of that is compounded by the fact that our cultures have really traditionally been eat our own, regardless of branch. Any admission of mellow or emotional impact was met with a resounding reply: "You must be weak." And what a huge barrier that is. So. Left, Yeah, founded Responder Strong, uh, a mental health initiative to improve supports for responders and their families in 2016, left Aurora in 2017. And it's just been a wild ride since then. In 2020, we folded Responder Strong into All Clear, And I currently serve as the executive director for All Clear, And I'm really grateful to get to do this work.
0: Amazing. I mean, your background is amazing and impressive. And for those listeners out there who don't know where aurora colorado is it's a very big city it's only second to to denver correct
2: in colorado yes it's about 400 000, i think is the yeah. current population yeah. when i was there it was around 350 to 390
0: yeah it's a big city and a lot of people uh live there and it, it amazes me whenever you tell a story and i've heard it a bunch of times and you know that you were in the arctic working and then you like had this journey and now you're working. (laughs) I was actually watching a show a little off topic right now. I was watching a show. I watch these crazy shows sometimes. I watch these crazy shows. um, And uh, I want to know, because you were up in the Arctic, where are the aliens? There's like alien bases up there is what I read.
2: (laughs) Never saw an alien base. A lot of penguins. No, no,
0: you don't have to put me on an M1 or anything. I'm not crazy. (laughs) Um, But no, I was watching this crazy show and I talked about all these mysteries of the Arctic up there
2: that's amazing I, i'll
0: have to look for that one no don't no, it's kind of cheesy but it's it's i was just you know up late one night and i was like i'm gonna watch this show and they were talking about all these aliens that are supposedly hiding out there anyway i'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> it's okay patrick <laughs> but you know what what you you said i mean it all resonated with me but you know the fact that um, departments still, not every department, are in their own little silos. You know, you got you got like kind of PD over here and fire and EMS and corrections. We're I think we're getting better. You tell me if I'm wrong with communicating and working as a uh, you know collaboratively uh, with mental health and other challenges that first responders um, face. But I think sometimes when I go to meetings or, or go to events, I mean you still see that that silo. You know, we're we're kind of in our own little area. We don't really want to mix well with others. I think we're getting better with that stuff.
2: I think we are overall, and I see it across the country. When we founded Responder Strong, it was kind of novel at the time to work across branch boundaries, but we knew if we wanted that important piece, if we wanted to change our culture, we had to. We couldn't do it in isolation. We had to do it yep. with each other. And then the other thing that we really did that I think helped Responder Strong grow so quickly was that we partnered with our allies, the clinicians, the researchers, sure. foundations, um, the educators who really wanted to work with us and who really had expertise that was valuable to share, but they lack the keys to the door, they didn't speak the right language. So in our partnership, and that's a big part of our motivation, and I know it is for you personally, is it's a great force multiplier to have strategic partnerships. We don't have the time, the resources, or the the money to reinvent the wheel. It Absolutely. really is all about yeah force multiplication if we wanna get anywhere.
0: And you know, as a first responder yourself, and I'm a first responder, the listeners, a lot of them are first responders. A lot of times, not all the time, when a first responder is, crisis- and is in crisis, whatever that may look like, a lot of times they just want to talk to other first responders or somebody who's been there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's how they connect, you know, making the connection. Okay, you get it, Rhonda. You were a first responder. You were a firefighter, EMT. You know it. You walk the walk.
2: Right, and you know, one of the things we talked about the last time we got to to catch up with each other was pre-COVID. I've seen some shifting around that since yeah. COVID. In fact, it's pretty significant. Whereas,
0: and that's not a with... knock. That's not a knock on professionals out there who.
2: Oh no, no, are, are civilians. Now. I mean, well, what I'm seeing now, and especially because All Clear Foundation, we are really focused on the overall well-being and longevity of emergency responders, inclusive of healthcare workers, because that's another thing. COVID definitely. Yeah. Nailed the door shut on is that yeah we we are very much the same in personality and motivations and self expectations in occupational exposures and in the human reactions to those exposures whether you're on the hospital side of the ER doors or you're out in the field um, but one of the things we're really seeing is before COVID responders really just wanted to talk to peers they wanted yeah. somebody who got it they wanted somebody who was in the pit with them they could you know just talk through it. Since COVID, I've noticed across the country that it seems like the stressors have compounded so much and the stigma has decreased, normalization has increased, especially around mental and emotional health challenges, that responders now just don't want to talk to somebody else who's suffering the way they are. They want to talk to somebody else who understands, preferably because they walk the same path,
0: sure. yeah. like who
2: knows yeah. how to guide them to the resources. They don't want to sit around and talk about it anymore. They want to live a better life. They want to help manage it. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of that's driven by the fact that they're pushed so much closer to the edge of crisis. You're like, now I don't have time. I I need to do something right now. And I need informed advocacy and and navigation of the system.
0: Yeah, because, Ben and I haven't been doing this very long, Ronnie. You've been doing a lot longer than I have. But, I mean, you know, I think by the time a first responder, I start talking to a first responder, they need help like yesterday. Mm -hmm. They don't need help like two weeks from now or a month from now and wait for a bed. They need help like right now.
2: (laughs) Exactly. And at that point, Siri and Google are not good options. You're not likely to get on a good resource that has the cultural competency, that understands the trauma exposure, that understands some of the baggage you might be carrying from your life before the career, whether you are in the military or you had an adverse childhood history. Um, there, There are just a whole lot of factors here. And to your point that you made just a few minutes ago, it is really imperative that when a responder reaches out in crisis, they get to somebody who's already got all that background because uh, we don't have time to fill out the 20-page questionnaire on our history. Like absolutely. You don't understand. Yeah.
0: Now, I know you talk to a lot of first responders, obviously. You know, And what do you think the biggest barriers are for, or, you know, even a first responder right now or anybody who's suffering right now, when we're going to have some resources uh, to talk about in a minute, but why do you think it's so hard for first responders to say, all right, I'm going to make that call. I'm going to come forward. I'm going to, I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to call Rhonda or I'm going to call this person or that person. What do you think the barriers are in your opinion?
2: Number one is the same that it's been for a long time is, is internal stigma. The yeah. response still having self-doubt and thinking if I reach out, is it because I'm weak being mired in shame, feeling like they're less than everybody else, that they're not contributing, um, feeling I mean, like going to back
0: me up. up.
2: Yeah, exactly. So I think stigma is the number one reason. That is eroding rapidly from what I've seen. I think one of the other biggest barriers is geography and the location of resources, that there are a lot of areas across this country, especially in small, rural, and medically underserved communities that, great, you've overcome your, your own internal stigma, external stigma. You want to find a mental health clinician who gets it. You can't even find a mental health clinician in yeah. a lot of these these communities. And COVID's kind of exacerbated that. You know, We're seeing that, ironically, mental health providers have been taking the advice we've been giving each other forever, which is have boundaries, take me time, know when you've had enough, recharge. So we see that a lot of mental health providers have left the field. We're seeing that the ones who are remaining are overwhelmed with the influx of people seeking treatment, and that they're having to put pretty rigorous boundaries around themselves so that there's not Even nationally, with the advent of telehealth, which is fantastic, I think that's one another. Yeah, I think it's great. But we still just don't have the trained population to do that. But I think there's solutions to that. In to your point, branching away from maybe, well, including licensed, trained mental health providers when necessary, but recognizing this can be a tiered system. Sometimes coaches, sometimes peers, sometimes chaplains. There, there are a whole host of other solutions. And then the third really big solution, which I think is one of the most challenging is the financial barrier. Yeah. A lot of the challenges that responders face are directly tied to the job, but they don't get coverage through the workplace or they get very limited coverage, three visits, six visits in a system that is already so overburdened that the next appointment, the first appointment, six weeks out, can't wait. I'm kind of in an urgent place now. And so many responders, especially with inflation, are really struggling. They don't have excess funds on hand to pay for the support they need that could potentially save their lives. So I think those yeah. those are the three big ones: stigma, um, locational local resources and availability, yeah. and then also financial.
0: Yeah, and I and I agree with you. I mean, those are fantastic. Uh, you know, unfortunately, they're they're fantastic examples of barriers. Um, But I I do think too, it's, it's, it's culture, you know, I mean, I think a culture in an organization, every department's a little different. Every organization is a little different, but uh, I talked to a lot of people as you do. And I I think there's still some of that culture in a lot of these agencies where just suck it up. This is part of the job. You know, I've heard, well, this is what first responders signed up for. No, I didn't sign up to see dead babies and all this other stuff. So I I get kind of irritated when people say, well, that's what firefighters signed up for. No. Actually, we didn't sign up for that. You know, we we signed up to to serve, and uh, but we didn't sign up to to get the trauma. You know what I mean?
2: Well, in saying that, I love that, and a great, great analogy is well, yeah, um, football players sign up with the NFL to play football. But if the get, NFL yeah. didn't want them any training or support, they wouldn't be very good at it. And I think, yeah, responders signed up to do this work. But traditionally, our organizations have failed to support us, to teach us about stress injury, to teach us about resiliency, to teach us, yes, you have to sacrifice your own comfort and you need to put others' needs first in the moment. But that's not a sustainable way of life. Yeah, Let's get away from this martyr glorification and recognize if we want to show up and perform at the top of our game which most of us do we got to keep our own batteries charged self-care resiliency are not luxuries they're not foo-foo they're absolutely essential we take such great care of our rigs our batteries our equipment yeah. and how often do we really check in with ourselves to see how am i doing because if we're not showing up with our A game it's not going to go well
0: you know that's it. you're you're exactly right. Yeah, I remember when I went through treatment, uh, Rhonda. I mean, I had even after treatment, during in during treatment, I had accountability partners. You know, p- people that would call me out of okay, if I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? And even right. at to this day, I'm still in contact with guys, women, and and men who were patients when I was there that hold each other accountable, not in an you know, mean type of way, but you know, they, they can, they can be pretty curt sometimes and say, get your shit together. You know, does you, you have the foundation that you have learned in treatment? So I think having an accountability apartment uh, partner or somebody you trust um, it will help. It won't solve all your problems, but it can help with, you know, keeping your feet to the fire and being, you know, being responsible for your actions and, and things you oh, do.
2: Exactly. And helping you course correct. Cause so many times we're not as aware from the inside as people are from the outside whoo you're, you're you're starting to change course a little bit yeah. we don't realize it's more way off track but if yeah. somebody can jump nudge us, like hey i noticed
0: and, and you mentioned finances because finances are huge especially when when people want to get help i i can speak from experience when i went to chatterproof um i had an out-of-pocket of like three thousand you know and i was like crap i was going through a divorce that was because you know money and stuff But there are organizations, FHE being one of them, and plenty more, and I know your organization would help too, that can kind of bridge that gap and kind of help first responders. Because when I was heading to treatment, the last thing I wanted to think about was, oh, shit, money. I'm not saying money is not, you know, in the back of your mind somewhere, but I didn't want that to be on the forefront. And, you know, FHE helped kind of alleviate that by tapping into some resources they had being, you know, Mm -hmm. connected with some 401s and C3s and some other nonprofits to kind of help bridge that gap. So I guess my point to the listener out there is there are resources uh, out there for you in case you are worrying about, okay, how do I I pay for this? I mean, there are resources out there, 100 Club, all these other organizations.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, FHE's done a fantastic job. There's a new organization launched in Colorado. It's a calling foundation who's mission is to provide the payment and guidance to appropriate care for responders. Foundation 1023, the list goes on. FHE has done a fantastic job. I know several responders who've benefited Mm. from their generosity and um, many of whom's lives were saved by it. And we at All Clear Foundation don't offer financial support, but one of the things we offer is a vetted resource directory. Uh, Absolutely. Within that, we point to other organizations that fulfill a whole variety of needs that responders and their families might encounter.
0: And, and I think it, it's just, I think with, with a lot of people, especially when it comes to mental health and you tell me if I'm wrong, Rhonda, mm-hmm. it's just the, the lack of education or they don't know that it's out there for them. Now you got to vet, right? You got to properly vet organizations and, and treatment, especially treatment. But I think it comes down to people don't know that some of these resources are, are out there for them. You know what I mean? Because Absolutely. when you're going through a dark place, I know you've had your challenges. I have had mine. And you're thinking, well, nobody else will understand. Uh, nobody else gets it. And the reality is a lot of people do get it. And they're here to help you.
2: Well, and that's one of the things that I love about All Clear Foundation. I, I joined them in 2020, late in the year.
0: Amazing organization.
2: Oh, yeah. They were founded in 2019. But one of the things we talk about is there are a whole wealth of resources out there. And it goes back to that strategic partnerships. Let's not reinvent the wheel.
0: Absolutely. Um,
2: When people, to your point, reach out, they're usually in such a stressed state of mind, many times in a shame pit, they don't have the capacity to navigate complex systems. So we're really working to create an easily accessible one or two doors to get in and an easily navigable system. Okay, boom, you're here. Let's figure out what you need and how to get to it. And we do that through our website. We do that through one of our free digital tools, the You Responder Strong Wellness Tool. That I'm proud to say is free, available 24-7, confidential for all responders and their families. What it really allows them to do is create an account with a private place for assessment. We know that a lot of people are curious about their sleep habits and do they have a sleep disorder. They're, uh, Alcohol, their drinking habits, and do I have a problem or am I using this numb or cope? What can I do instead? Um, I'm feeling really off. What's wrong? What can I do to feel better? And the system is driven by AI. So each user oh, wow. can figure out what they're interested in. And instead of being inundated by the thousands of resources that are on it, they can be guided. AI pulls it to the top of their stream and they can find more information in the form of videos, webinars, podcasts, short and long form written. And as they increase their awareness, they have the opportunity to check out our story section where other responders give 30 to 90 second testimonials with the challenges they've faced, how they've overcome them. And then at the far end, they're
0: powerful. The that's powerful. It is and you exactly
2: wouldn't... right. The normalization piece. Oh, it yeah. isn't just me. And there's hope this person got through it. Um, so yeah, we're we and that's part of our template is we're really looking at okay geography is a problem, um, finances are a problem, so everything we do is free and um, scheduling is a problem. People don't have a lot of time, so we do short format, we do long format, um, we do a lot of train the trainers so we can equip the local wellness champions. Every agency has one, whether they're official or not. And that person we know usually doesn't have the time, the money, the uh, access to train, to create their own trainings. So we give our trainings away 20 to 25 sessions a year of a train the trainer and get content out. And we're, we're really happy that everything we do is through funding. So some of it's federal, some of it's corporate, some of it's philanthropic. And it's just people who sincerely want to see responders not suffer needlessly. For their
0: service. Yeah, I think I saw a stat, um, and I quote this, I think I saw it a couple weeks ago, like 40% uh, of first responders out there, and that means fire, everybody under that umbrella, are suffering, you probably know better than I, you know, are suffering from mental health addiction or both, and that's the number we know about, right? I mean, imagine what that, I imagine the number is much, much higher than, than, you know, 39, 40%, it's probably through the roof. Well, if
2: we at groups like Blue Help and uh, Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. They believe we're only capturing about 40% of the actual occurrence of suicide. That's because nobody,
0: a lot of people don't report.
2: Exactly. for And sometimes for good reasons, well-intentioned reasons, and other times because it's not recognized, other times because of stigma, and they don't want to shame the memory. Like, no, no, no. What you're doing is telling everybody, just take that stuff to your grave with you. And it's not a good message. But I think there is a lot of underreporting across the board. But to balance that out, I think there's also a significant increase in awareness that none of this, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, substance misuse, anger issues is no more a character flaw than hypertension, diabetes, or cardiac disease, that they're all being driven by the same two major factors. One is chronic overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system. And two is chronic elevation of the stress hormones that goes along with that, in particular cortisol, and that the nerves, mm-hmm. the nervous system and the hormones just wreak havoc on our bodies and on our brains. But once we understand that's what's happening, we can deal with it more effectively. And it's not that we just get one big wallop. It's not usually the single headline grabbing incident that gets us. It's the smaller yeah, it's accumulation, accumulation, of, the
0: accumulation of, of trauma and trauma and trauma. So you can't take it anymore.
2: Exactly. And one of the things that I've seen, and I've been reading a lot about lately, um, Gabor Mate, if you, if you haven't read him, he's absolutely phenomenal. Psychologist, uh, focuses on trauma. He says that there are three things that universally increase our stress response. It's uncertainty, lack of information, or misinformation, and conflict and if we look at the past 3 years wow. that's kind of the top 3 things that's it's like going the top on. i
0: was just thinking that's right. e- that's everything
2: <laughs> i know right and what it seems like you know we have life before the job we have all the stuff that happens on the job and all the expectations and then we also have this compounding factor from factors that are way beyond our control globally and that just reinforces and i think a lot of people are understanding wow if i want to make it through all this if i want to deal with all this and have a good life I got to learn to deal with my stress in the moment because the old school way of I'm just going to lock it away in the pain locker or this compartment behind me um, and deal with it when it it explodes or hopefully it never does. That's that's gone by the wayside.
0: No, it's like that 800 pound gorilla in the room. You know, I mean, you look at it and you're like, okay, it's there. If I don't look at it in the eyes, it's it's not going to get me. (laughs) The reality is it's always there.
2: Exactly. And it's taking its toll on you mentally because you know, it's there and
0: you're not dealing with it. One of the things I learned in treatment, Rhonda was, and it took a while for me to learn is most of the stuff, stuff incidents or or things that I worry about that are, that, that might happen either one never happen or two, and this is just me or two, if they do happen, they're not as big as I built them in my mind. I'm not saying bad shit doesn't happen. I'm just saying, the, my, my mind tends to go to the worst case scenario. Like a lot of people, worst case scenario, oh, well, this is going to happen. I'm gonna...
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Go yeah, Responders are responders, taught that way.
2: are trained to look for the worst thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we're never so it's a matter taught of deep things, things. These skills. Right. The skills that make us good on the job that we get promoted and rewarded for and praised for, they're not necessarily good life skills. They're not sustainable. They're designed for the operational moment. And if we continue to try to operate that way, we're going to, we're not, we won't be sustainable. And I love what you just said. It reminded me of the quote. I think it's Mark Twain that um, I've suffered a great many trials and tribulations yeah. in life, some of which were actually real. And <laughs> most of them are in our heads.
0: Exactly, yeah. exactly. And what, one of the things, one of the treatment modalities I did down at FHE, I think I told you this before, was neurostimulation. I remember yes. when I got down there, and I know you know what that is, but when I got down there, you know, they started talking about neuro and neurostimulation, neurofeedback, two different things, but along the same lines, but neurostimulation is basically stimulating the brain with little microamps because our brain has electricity, like, you know, uh, and, but I remember first hearing that and they're going, "We're like an electric shock treatment. What the hell, man, I'm thinking like Jack Nicholson and one flow of the cuckoo's nest and I'm going to get lectures. No, it's not like that. But to get back to. The point I'm trying to make is it all it's all in the brain, right? It starts with our brain. So as long as your brain is healthy, everything else is going to follow, right? I mean, exactly. if, if, you, if you can kind of work to alleviate that stress. And the one thing about neurotherapy, it basically kind of works on those areas that are, are, lack of a better word, damaged, uh, you know, in those certain areas of the brain. And it helps kind of rewire, for lack of a better term, those areas of the brain. So, it, it, Ron, it was like night and day. I did 18 treatments and about after the fifth treatment, it was like, holy crap, you know, it was compounded with all the other modalities I was doing down there. Right. But it was amazing because we, we still don't know a whole lot about the brain, but we we know a lot more than we did yesterday and we keep learning more and we'll know more tomorrow. Exactly. So it's amazing, the brain.
2: It is what well, I I love listening to you talk about your path and how much and how quickly you noticed signs of recovery, which it's, it's inspiring. Well, and,
0: you know, and then and I, and I remember I, I don't know if I told you this, but when I was in treatment about two weeks in first thing I had to do with a lot of first responders, uh, I think suffer from okay, fear, guilt, shame, ego, you know, before they reach out. I got to a point where I just put all that aside. And I said, I'm going to put my fear biggest thing aside. I'm scared to death put my ego aside. And I remember I told a couple of people where I was going, obviously family, a couple of friends. And I remember about two weeks into treatment, a good friend of mine I used to work with, called me up and I said, Hey man, what's going on? How you doing? I said, I'm doing great. You know, I'm in recovery and I, I'm feeling good. He said, look, some people that you used to work with at the PD want to know what's going on with you. You know, would you mind if I told him, I was like, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not scared anymore. I'm not ashamed. Wow. Not afraid. Um, if this can help other people, uh, then I'm all for it. Now, Rhonda, if you would have asked me that like a couple of years ago.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: no. No, no, no Everything's fine. Everything's great. I, you know, you know what fine stands for, you know, right. F F'd up, insecure, <laughs> neurotic, and, and emotional. So when I hear fine, that's like a trigger. No, you're not fine. You're messed up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly well yeah and it's not it's, it's not shrouded in secrecy anymore yeah, people yeah. are recognizing when oh, it's like a, it's a, a healing a, a, is to yeah,
0: give it's up like a burden you've been to your own challenges once you start talking about it it's like a release at least it was for me
2: oh absolutely i love um renee brown's teaching
0: she oh talks about yes
2: shame can't survive the light of day and that our shame is a self-perpetuating condition because the more fearful we are, the deeper we try to hide it and the more shame we feel that when we just kind of acknowledge this is what's happening, not only does it... lift that burden off of us but it increases our ability to connect with others because we're not the special unicorn who's suffering and nobody else has ever had this or experiencing it most of the people around us are suffering like in some special similar capacity. I yeah. like that
0: special <laughs> unicorn i'm special i'm <laughs> the only one going through this <laughs> exactly
2: but well, when that's we, how we think. Right yeah but when we acknowledge what we're going through and and what we're the steps we're taking that allows us to have a deeper connection with other people who are who then in turn you know it's like the perpetuating cycle.
0: Yeah I'm reading you mentioned books I'm reading a book Eckhart Tolle. Oh I love him. Yeah, the power of now. Mm-hmm. Amazing book. Yep. And the whole premise is like the book suggests it's living in the moment.
2: Well and I love that because that's what mindfulness is it's being Exactly. Presented. And one of the my favorite messages out of that book is the that you don't need to worry. And I remember Eckhart talking to this guy. who's was like, no, no, my bills are due. I need to worry about it. I need to worry. And Eckhart kept saying, you don't need to worry. You do need to pay your bills, but you don't need to worry. And worry puts you in a, uh, you know, basically, Sympathetic nervous system activation—it actually decreases your access to your internal resources, especially Absolutely. your cognitive ones and your imagination. And and we—I think as responders, we um, we have so many "I have to"s that we're not realizing how many of them are self-imposed and blocking us from what we really want to get to. And uh, yeah,
0: yeah, and you know, yeah, like you said, I mean, meditation is all about living in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's all about now. And I love what he says in the book, The Power of Now. Past is past. Future hasn't happened yet. So it's not now. Right. The only thing you have is right now.
2: And especially if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you pull yourself back to, "Okay, where am I right now? And is anything wrong right now? Usually the answer is no.
0: Well, I think it comes down to, Rhonda, I mean, in my opinion, I think it comes down to having that honest conversation with yourself. A friend of mine said it was an internal search warrant. I love that. <laughs> Do uh, whatever you want to call it—you know—a search warrant on yourself, and really being honest with yourself. You might be able to BS other people, you know, and oh, I'm fine, I'm great, I'm not suffering, I'm—I don't drink too much. But when you have that honest conversation with yourself, have that you know heart-to-heart with yourself, that's where the breakthrough comes. At least for me, is okay. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm effed up. I need some help. But Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't do that. They don't want to, they want to keep up the charade, lack of a better word. You know, they want to keep up appearances, you know, oh, he's fine. Can't let people know, or she's fine. Can't let people know I'm suffering.
2: Exactly. Well, in the fire service, instead of an internal search warrant, it's an internal scene size up. Same thing. (laughs) And I think. One of the biggest stressors, you know, aside from our self-talk in our mind, because we never get away from ourselves, but is this dissonance between what I'm saying and how I'm presenting versus what I truly am feeling inside. And um, that takes a lot to
0: cognitive dissonance,
2: right? Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah, I learned that.
2: You learned a lot. <laughs> but it makes you feel like you're not living in your integrity. You're holding yourself up to a certain standard and feeling like you're failing instead of recognizing that, no, 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 this is where you're at and you you don't have enough supports to put you back up at the standard where you want. It's not you. It's how you're being supported and how you're allowing yourself to be supported. That's one of the, I'm sure you've seen this too, the research around gratitude Oh. You know, we've always told, that's a great mindfulness practice, but now they're saying it's not just that you notice things you're grat- grateful for so that you shift your negativity bias to one for positivity positivity and gratitude, but it's actually receiving the gratitude offered by others. And I think that's where responders are so bad. There have been so many heartfelt expressions of thankfulness and appreciation and responders reflexively it's no big deal. I was just doing my job. And what the research is showing is one, we're deflecting some of the charge we need to keep our internal batteries yeah. up to up to pace when we deflect that. But then two, we're also blocking the connection with that person. So they are truly trying to express their gratitude. And we're just
0: and we need that.
2: Out. Exactly. And exactly. it's not about
0: being egotistical or anything like no. that, but it's it's good to accept that.
2: Exactly. And you know, I, there's a lot of aspects of our responder cultures, the martyrdom and, and so many others that have just become really toxic. And I think if we can reset that, redefine what strength is. I think we all honor and value strength, but we've thought in the past that strength was keeping it inside, sucking yeah. up buttercup, not reaching out for help because we are the help. And now strength is being in touch with yourself, being in touch with what's going on around you and knowing when you need to make strategic changes, whether that's a couple of days off, Mindfulness, ending a relationship, changing a role in an agency, recognizing that that's, that's all strategic. That's how you maintain maximum performance.
0: And it takes a lot of strength and humility, as you know, to, to get up. I know you do a lot of it, talk to people, to get up and talk about sensitive topics like mental health, addiction, things like that. It takes a lot of strength to, to do that. But that's where, that's where you get it, you know, your, your, at least I, I know it's hard to explain. I get like power from that, not in a negative way, but it's like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm helping, you know, I'm, I'm trying to help people and trying to give back to a profession that was so good to me over the years.
2: Well, and I think doing that, we realize how many of our fears are, are groundless, baseless. Sure. Um, it's like that big gorilla in the corner that we're trying not to look at. <laughs> and then we find out, oh, it's a big stuffed cuddly gorilla. It's not the thing that I was fearing. The fear was in my head.
0: I'm going to go hug that gorilla. <laughs>
2: <laughs> for um, yeah. Um, Rhonda Kelly, great.
0: yeah, you're amazing. How how do people reach out to you uh, at the yeah. All Clear Foundation, all the other things you're you're doing out there? If they want to reach out to you and get involved and and, and connect with you,
2: thanks. Um, AllClearFoundation.org is our website. ResponderStrong.org is our mental health initiative. We still maintain the separate website for that. Uh, my email is super simple, ronda with an h uh at allclearfoundation.org. Um, you can also find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, Instagram. We're on we're on all the things. TikTok. Tick, no, I, I do not think we're on TikTok. Sorry. <laughs> oh, but one thing I'd love the opportunity to say, because I know you have such good or such a, a broad array of followers Absolutely. and listeners, is going back to those barriers. We were really fortunate to obtain a federal grant from the Health and Human Department of Health and Human Services this year, specifically targeting the agencies and the healthcare clinics who serve small, rural, and medically underserved communities. That is
0: amazing. Yeah, so
2: we're recruiting agencies with about thirty or fewer personnel, career or volunteer, any of the branches. It can be ski patrol, search and rescue, fire, dispatch, corrections, law enforcement. Corners, the list goes on healthcare clinics, as I mentioned, we're able to provide them with a wide array of free resources, and including offering a scholarship to a local mental health professional to attend the National Emergency Responder and Public Safety Centers, 56 hour certification for working with emergency responders. That that is
0: amazing, because you know, like you indicated before, there's so many agencies out there. I mean, most people you know, don't real like when in terms of law enforcement, not every agency is like an NYPD or an LAPD. No, mm-hmm. Most agencies are a hundred or less when it comes to departments around the country and same with fire- firehouses too. I mean, they're small. And so they don't have the resources out there to, to try to combat these problems that first responders are having. So it's amazing that we oh, exactly. got that grant. It's awesome. Well,
2: and like we know in the small communities, whether you're a career or volunteer your impacts get compounded by the fact that almost nobody's a stranger everybody, yeah, everybody knows each other to care for exactly and you know their family and their kids and um just the way people can carry that especially if they're volunteering that i've got this day job and then i'm always on to respond in this other role and if i get hurt in this other role well then my income could be i mean there's just a whole yeah. host of additional complicating factors in those communities that yes. we're really excited to be able to help with years.
0: And that's why I love having people like you on, I mean, to talk about, you know, everything out there for first responders, resources out there, you just got to tap into it. There's a lot exactly. out there, a lot of great work.
2: Exactly. And yeah, and I love people with the the shared mindset that you and I have is that yeah. we're all in this together, we need to work collaboratively. It's not territorial. There's plenty of problems out there to work on.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it shouldn't be that. Because <laughs> we're all trying to do the same thing.
2: <laughs> right? Exactly. Oh. Right. Rhonda
0: Kelly, you're amazing. Thank you for coming on the show, my friend. Everything we talk about or talked about in this show will be linked up in the show notes. I would love to have sure. you back on in the future.
2: Anytime. Shoot me a text. We'd love to get back together. It's so good getting to catch back up with you. And yeah. again, I find everything you've done and everything you're doing is very inspiring. I'm really grateful to, that you're here for our community and that I get to call you a friend.
0: Oh, you're amazing. Amazing, Rhonda. <laughs> Thank you. you Thank you. Uh-huh. All right. Well, take, take, care.
2: take care. All right.
0: Bye-bye. Such a great show with Rhonda Kelly. She's an amazing individual helping first responders everywhere. If you love the audio of this show, check out the video on YouTube at the CJ Evolution Podcast YouTube channel. Until next time, everybody, be safe.